I'm John Bruner with O'Reilly. My guest today is Deeraj Ramella. He's the Director of Solutions Architecture at VoltDB. Thanks for joining. Good to have you on. Thank you, John. Good to be here. So today we're going to talk about telco data management as a way to talk about some trends in, in data, how people are handling it and using it. So, uh, Deeraj, I wonder if you could begin by sort of giving us a quick overview of how telcos have historically managed uh, subscriber data. What did this look like, you know, 30 years ago? Absolutely, John. Um, telcos have been pioneers of fast data management. When you look back in the earlier days, the databases, there were no databases that could actually do what telcos required. So they started off with uh, custom in-house uh, uh, built data management tools. Um, but as time progressed, uh, they started looking at other databases like in-memory database technology. Um, widely used would be solid DB or timestamp from IBM and Oracle. But uh, these uh, traditional databases moved into in-memory has been becoming a bottleneck as they are growing, especially with the modern devices and the increased signaling. There's a lot more data coming in into telco uh, systems that uh, these older architecture databases are falling down. So they're turning to find new alternatives or newer architecture databases that can actually help them manage this increasingly fast data and increasingly large volumes of data. So um, a, a few decades ago, they were really just managing things like uh, billing and, and the barest kinds of usage, and now they're looking for a more granular way of, of understanding their subscribers? That's exactly right. When you look at traditional tel telco operations, it's all about what the telcos do. Now the telcos are being used, the telco framework is being used for other uh, things like the OTT services. Uh, you know, take, for instance, Skype voice over IP or mm -hmm. Google videos from YouTube. All of these are actually not just unidirectional, in instigated by the subscriber kind of actions anymore. They are bidirectional. So it's not just a person calling another person or watching a video, but these have notifications built in now. So there's a lot of back and forth going on. So the paging services have started really increasing a lot. Interesting. So what, what was the first really significant pivot uh, in the way that, that telcos approach uh, data management? I would definitely place the largest change in telco was heading towards 4G. Now it's actually mm. go, started going into a direction with the 5G where you started actually getting a, flowing a lot more data through their pipelines. So up to 3G, it was a little bit of a slower data, but, you know, voice, but then once 4G started uh, now you have LTE, LTE Advanced, and private LTEs. All of these are actually already starting to kindle some fires of growth, so to speak. Mm. Um, and as we're progressing towards uh, more and more uh, you know, data flowing through telco organizations, they're looking for change. And this is a great, great time to be in the telco business. Interesting. So uh, on the other hand, we sometimes hear about uh, the way that telcos are worried that they're just becoming sort of dumb pipes for the internet. And, and maybe the value is in the content and the services provided over them. Is that a, a threat that uh, you hear about? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's a threat and a challenge. But along with it comes opportunities, right? So every threat has an opportunity if you handle it correctly. So when you look at telcos and the OTTs, there are a couple of ways that I was mulling over it uh, a few weeks back. And uh, there are a couple of things that they could do um, 
of course, there is net neutrality, uh, you know, that the mm -hmm. telcos need to provide the same kind of uh, service for any traffic that's going over their infrastructure. But I think there is a very good chance of something coming into fruition, like a partnership between these OTT services, uh, where mm -hmm. there's a revenue sharing model um, as against, uh, you know, one underpinning the other and not providing the appropriate services. So I think there'll be more collaboration. Um, if that doesn't succeed, I'm thinking there's going to be more of a merger and acquisition kind of uh, activity. We already see some semblance of it uh, mm -hmm. between various uh, players in either side of the industry, between media and content providers and the telco organizations. Sure. Like Verizon and Yahoo, for instance, and uh, yeah, AT&T exactly. and Time Warner. That's exactly yeah. right. And uh, I, I don't recall who it was, but someone actually bought uh, Level 3 communication because mm -hmm. they wanted to get prepared for 5G. So there's a lot of consolidation of capabilities between media, telco, and the underlying hardware and infrastructure provisioning uh, organizations because these CSPs are looking to become somewhat a unique value provider in their universe, right? Because people are people and there are X number of people in this world, mm -hmm. right? So the subscribers themselves are not going to increase. So now they need to start looking at other avenues of revenue generation. And it'll be interesting to see where they go with this. Yeah, what what uh, what might a partnership look like between uh, the telcos and and you know the content companies in a way that doesn't violate net neutrality? Right. So I'm thinking if it's actually something that makes sense from a business standpoint, when if you create a partnership where the OTT service providers could have tiered quality mm -hmm. and tiered rates, so a higher tier would actually go with a higher rate. And now the higher tier would be able to indicate to the telco infrastructure through signaling that, hey, this is Skype and this guy is actually a platinum uh, subscriber. So provide the best uh, quality of service. Whereas uh, on the other hand, you could actually tier the quality down for uh, lower subscribe subscription levels. That's mm -hmm. something that came to my mind. Uh, the other ways of looking at it is essentially, say, for example, Skype just says like, okay, anything that goes Skype, I want it to have the best quality of service. So we'll pay you monthly 2% of our revenues that we, uh, you know, for any communications that go over, say, for example, Verizon infrastructure or AT&T infrastructure. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking out loud at this point, um, but it will be interesting to see how it actually pans out because telco is owning all of the cost, right? while the OTT is gaining all the benefits of the infrastructure cost. Right, right. So it cannot, it's not a sustainable model. Yeah, so, I mean, speaking of cost, uh, 5G has been very expensive to, to implement. How is that impacting uh, telcos and, and the way that they're approaching their infrastructure? You know, at the end of the day, any new implementation, you know, the uh, industry experts are going to go through ROI analysis, right? So 5G mm. is not going to be just because it can transmit lots of data. You know, it's the opportunities that it opens up. Um, handling 5G is a challenge that comes once the opportunities get unleashed. When you look at the opportunities themselves, now you have a, a, a chance for network as service to become a real thing, right? So when you have 10, 10 gigabits per second bandwidth on a 5G uh, backplane, now you could actually segment it and start giving it out to smaller players. You don't need to be the big, single CSP. Instead, you could actually push down some of the infrastructure costs as a, a rental model. Think of it like, you know, uh, 
rent and live in the same building, right? So mm-hmm. you, you're living in one of the apartments while you're renting out other, the rest of them so you can get some of the income back in. So I, I think that kind of a model is going to stop playing in the network as service area. On the other hand, it also starts opening up a lot of highly distributed IoT deployments that would start tapping into utiliz- utilizing the 5G uh, infrastructure. So while it's, it's expensive, there's going to be a return on the investment and at the rate at which the smart devices and industrial IoT and medical IoT applications are getting developed, the returns would be much sooner than if, if not done with these kind of IoT uh, applications. Hmm. Interesting. You know, for, for a long time, the telcos have had really the best handle on who their customers are, right? They've, they've been, you know, among all the, the companies and sort of the pipeline, it's the telco who knows exactly who the customer is, has, uh, you know, some of the information about the customer. But now a lot of these, these OTT providers uh, and, and the content producers and so on are developing arguably closer relationships with customers than the telcos are. Is there any way that uh, telcos can, can retain their, uh, their position with the customer and, and remain, uh, you know, the most intelligent about who these people are? Absolutely. So when you look at each of these OTT providers, they would know their users in their universe. But all these universes of all the OTT providers are flowing through a CSP's network. So the CSP has a unique opportunity to get a customer 360 view of behavioral patterns and utilization patterns across all of the OTT services a specific subscriber could be using. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not sure like if it's going to cross into uh, a big brother state or not, but if you know, there's always opt-ins and opt-outs, right? So if you could actually put some kind of something like by default we're going to do this, you can opt out. Then they have an opportunity to start creating a platform in which they're aggregating the the subscribers' behavioral DNA, so to speak, uh, across these platforms. Now with that intelligence then they can actually turn around and start using this for creating revenue generating opportunities while maintaining a contextuality for the subscriber himself or herself. Because the utilization across various OTT services is still the same subscriber. That DNA Mm -hmm. is going to provide a continuity of contextualization. So, so it's up to the telcos to sort of stitch together all of the usage of their customers across the different services that the customers are using. That's exactly right. That seems like a huge technical challenge. How, how, uh, you know, how can you approach something like that that, that must involve just um, colossal amounts of, of data and a whole lot of interpretation on top of it? That's an interesting conundrum, right? So when you look, when you look at the e-commerce sites, they, they have a consortium. I forget the name of it, but if you shop on Amazon and search for something, that information is actually available for other retailers who are subscribing to that intelligence. The e-commerce traffic, of course, is far less compared to a telco traffic. So you need mm-hmm. something that can actually take in all of this data, not just aggregate it and store it and, you know, eventually analyze it. You know, there's a statistic uh, that, uh, you know, of all the data that has ever been collected, uh-huh. just about less than half a percent has ever been analyzed, right? <laughs> so when you turn around and look at the, the need for looking at this data to create a customer 360 view, mm-hmm. you need to be able to analyze this data as it's arriving and quickly so, and prepare for better analytics and continuous analytics of this. Um, I, 
it's a, here's a cheap plug, right? Like, so I think Vault DB is actually very uniquely positioned to satisfy those needs as, as exhibited by several of our telco customers that are actually engaging with us for fast data, fast analytics, real time, immediate action, and things of that nature. Right. It's, uh, you know, your statistic on the amount of data that's been collected and analyzed really sort of is a great illustration of the way that the data science trend has worked, right? I think starting, you know, between five and 10 years ago, it was the great management imperative of our era that you had to sort of collect all the data that you possibly could and keep it because you might want to analyze it later on. So a lot of companies invested in the infrastructure to collect data and store it. But I think a lot of them were left without, you know, the infrastructure, whether technical or human, to, uh, to analyze it, right? That's exactly right. The biggest gap is you can capture the data, you can analyze the heck out of it, but if you cannot operationalize what you found from your analysis, that whole analysis is just an interesting academic exercise. A very right. expensive dashboard that does nothing. That's exactly right. So, so what sorts of you know, human resources does a company need to make sense of data like this? So it's a continuum of data life spectrum, so to speak, right? So because new data is arriving every single second, but you also need to do your big data analytics to see what are actually the trends because you can you can do a certain level of machine learning, but then like after that, you still need a larger set sample of data. So it's almost like going to college and coming out into the real world, right? So you learn something in college and university, you come out, you start applying it and continue to learn in your career. So when you think of uh, um, big data and fast data, it's a very similar marriage. You go to college in your big data, you learn a lot, you turn around and apply it in your real-time and operational um, area using faster analysis and something that can actually scale as your needs grow and learn from what you're actually seeing and feed it back into this loop. So this is a continuous feedback loop. So when you look at people, skills, uh, and person personnel that need data skills, I would say basically anyone that has heavy data science, machine learning, um, perhaps even in the near future, artificial intelligence, and just database in general as well. So all of these skills put together will complete the picture, not just one of them, because one of them without the others is going to become an academic exercise at that point. Interesting. And, and uh, it's always a challenge as well for companies to really sort of take the conclusions of this analysis to heart and, uh, and implement them as a matter of business process sort of too. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a tug of war between keep the lights on and innovation, right? So yeah. So uh, let's let's take a look at sort of what's on the horizon. You mentioned IoT a second ago, the Internet of Things, the idea that uh, a lot of devices out there are going to be connected to the Internet um, and, and where maybe a few years ago we kind of had a couple of connections per person in a typical household or, or business setting. Now we're going to have tens or hundreds of connections per person. Uh, if you imagine that everything from, from uh, home light bulbs and washing machines to uh, industrial devices are all going to be connected to the internet. That sounds like a huge challenge for, uh, for the telecom operators. So how, how, are, uh, how are they approaching you know, that, that uh, you know, challenge of connecting everything to the IoT? So the IoT itself is an interesting area. Like, uh, it, it, you know, IoT used to be wearables and quantified self, and now it's just cute, 
that's it, right? So when mm-hmm. you turn around and actually look at the real place where there's a material difference, you can make in the society in in the cost of product being manufactured. That's industrial IoT. That's where the largest opportunity to do something like a renaissance in in a modern day time frame is available for us. This is historically, uh, you know, significant time frame where there's a massive change that's happening. And when you think of uh, what these IoT platforms mean for telco, telcos are provisioning this platform on which the things are talking to each other. But instead of looking at it as a, a, an additional responsibility or additional load or challenge, when you turn around and look at it, it actually counters the effect of limited population in the world, limited subscribers, and now you have to fight with each other to, uh, the CSPs need to fight with each other to see who gets the biggest market share. Instead, now when you actually look at IoT, it opens up several billions of subscribers, the things being subscribers, right? So mm-hmm. now if you just charge a cent per thing or two cents per thing, like whatever actually makes sense, it becomes a real opportunity. So on the other hand, of course, the infrastructure and the ability to transport the data and analyze it in real time starts increasing tremendously. Making the right investments and the right technology is quintessential for being able to tap into this new wave of market creation activity. Interesting. Another uh, you know, area of interest where we see telecoms and, uh, and content producers possibly working together or maybe facing off is... Uh, augmented reality and virtual reality, where you have huge issues of bandwidth and, and latency. Uh, are those areas where possibly the telcos could sort of develop moats, start to develop their own uh, products that are inherently superior to those of, the, of uh, other non-telco companies that might be able to develop them? I, I surely hope so, right? So because when you're actually making the kind of investment you need to make for 5G to happen, you don't want to just build the infrastructure and wait for something to happen, um, you know, but happenstance on that infrastructure, or rather you be the driver. Um, and being able to facilitate these kind of platforms that could start leveraging the AR and VR uh, infrastructure that's coming into play. If you look at Facebook uh, and uh, there are several other VR players. It's all just VR content at this point, mm-hmm. but it's going to become more and more advanced and more, more and more engaging and more and more real in real opportunities. Like uh, the other day, I was actually watching a video of uh, a human body in an exploded view where you're actually able to look at every single component in the human body. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm meaning in a, like a biological medical manner of 3D explosion, exploded view. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, uh, then it's only a matter of time before which you could actually make remote surgery a reality. When you think of artificially intelligent uh, uh, robots that could actually feed the data back to uh, an, a real person that's making smart choices, intelligent choices, uh, and they can look at everything in 3D. They, it could be just like the doctor is uh, actually, the surgeon is in the uh, uh, OR. Mm-hmm. So if the telcos do not tap into that market with prov- provisioning a platform as a service. They will actually let someone else do that. It's time for them to do it because they are the first to market at this point. But if they miss this opportunity, it's going to be a tremendous mistake and a very expensive one at that. Yeah, you see them doing the same thing in the IoT to go back to that as well, right? Uh, the telecom operators like Verizon and AT&T are actually 
creating their own IoT platforms that sort of compete with other IoT platforms that don't have the strength of a telecom company behind them. That's exactly right. Like you can actually see several open source IoT platforms, right? So, but they are software components stitched together in an interesting manner and with uh, you know interesting interfaces and contracts for API. But when you look at where does it need to run, it needs to run on some infrastructure, right? So it could be private LTE, you know, deployment of 100,000 devices or something like that in close quarters, or it could be a broadly distributed uh, uh, you know, deployment such as solar panels in the desert. So all of these need to run on telco. That's where the telcos are well suited and well positioned to be able to create a platform of their own. And like you mentioned, you could see that already being done within you know, large organizations like Verizon, AT&T, Sprint, um, they, they are heavily investing in their IoT platform. This is their answer to what I mentioned earlier of limited population. Now you can actually open your infrastructure to devices starting to subscribe in. And if the service is good and if the functionality and the actual business value that it's pro- providing is good, the number of thing subscribers is going to increase exponentially. All right. Well, Dheeraj Ramala, it's uh, been a pleasure to speak with you. If listeners want to find you online, where should they look? Absolutely, John. It's been a fantastic pleasure for myself to have this conversation with you. Um, People can start tweeting to me at dramala.com. It's the first letter of my first name and my last name together. Um, That not dramala.com, at dramala. That's my uh, Twitter handle. Um, But if they want to see how VolTV could help their individual data challenges, uh, I welcome them to reach out to me at dramala at voltv.com or visit our website at voltv.com and check out the use cases where we've already been put to use. Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, Once again, I'm John Bruner with O'Reilly, and my guest today has been Dheeraj Ramella, the Director of Solutions Architecture at VoltDB. Thanks once again.